10 Great Ideas for 2020. That's how we're starting the year on Taiwan Insider. That's right. We're going to be bringing you some great ideas for a greener, healthier world. And what's more, these ideas are all from Taiwan. I'm Leslie Liao. I'm Andrew Ryan. I'm Natalie So. Let's get started with idea number 10. Number 10. Let's start with an idea for the younger generation. Now, many people think children in Taiwan spend too much time in the classroom. That's right. But an elementary school in Yilan got some attention for their innovative way of teaching courage, team spirit, and physical fitness. That's right. Now, the children were featured in a documentary back in July of last year. And in that documentary, we could see the teachers taking the children to a classroom without borders. At Yilan's Yueming Elementary School, sailing is a required course for third to sixth graders. The school is known for inspiring a love for the ocean and its students. On May 1st last year, they even sent a group of students sailing to Japan's Ishigaki Island, which is about 250 kilometers away. The school's principal explains. At Yuemin Elementary School, the ocean is our teacher and the coast is our classroom. We're teaching children to embrace a spirit of adventure and overcome challenges as they're out in this coastal paradise. At a press conference earlier this month, the Interior Ministry presented a new documentary featuring the school called Hello Ocean, We Are in Yilan Coast. Director Ling Fangyi says, I went to the ocean with the children. We went kayaking and searching for clams and seaweed. And once you get to know the ocean, it's not scary at all. I went to the ocean and filmed for a year and then took six months to produce it. During post-production, I felt really uneasy being away from the ocean. The documentary is now available with English subtitles. Just search for Hello Ocean, We Are in Yilan Coast. Yilan is spelled Y-I-L-A-N. All right, we have 20 seconds on the clock, and we're going to have Leslie pitch the idea to us. What do you like so much about this project? All right, so I went to school in Taiwan as well, and uh, I think there's way too much emphasis on academic success, book smarts. Even in America, there's too much emphasis on stuff like this. And on YouTube now, I just watch videos on how to cook, how to, you know, uh, how to go fishing. I think these kids already know one more skill set than I do, which is to go sailing. And I'm already almost three decades into my life. Very nice. Well, you know, I agree. My husband is a new sailor, and it's a great way to de-stress. He's been happy and healthier ever since he took up the sport. That's awesome. So it's a great sport, and uh, we recommend it for our kids as well. Number six. Theaters aren't the most welcoming places for people with disabilities, but Taiwan's National Theater and Concert Hall is trying to change that. Accessibility consultant Sandy Yi told us about one of the many things that they're doing, relaxed performances. So for relaxed performance, we encourage people that if you want to move around, you can. If you need to stand up and even leave, and you can also come back. Mm-hmm. So That's it's, it's, huge, yeah, right? Usually very, at the National mm-hmm. Concert Hall or the National Theater, once you leave, you have to wait to yeah. come back in, or maybe you can't come back in. Yeah, it's very much about you know teaching the audience a new way of channeling in, mm-hmm. bringing your whole body, mind in. Mm-hmm. Like really paying attention to, wait, do I need to come up and I mean, stretch 
me leave my seat and stretch. Can I take a break and come back? And this is a real need yeah. for a lot of audience who have autism. Mm-hmm. One way that、um, folks soothe themselves, maybe rocking, maybe making some sound. It's amazing how much we are trained to behave in a certain way in a theater setting. You have to be quiet. You can't move. You can't get up and, and walk around, and that's so antithetical to the way human beings interact in normal life in the in every in the in the world. Okay, Andrew, you have twenty seconds to sell us this idea. All right, I think this is a fantastic idea. It's great not just for people with disabilities; it's also good for children, for the elderly, for anybody that finds、uh, theaters to not be an ex- inclusive place. Now, a lot of theaters already have what they need to do this. You just basically have to change people's minds. And actually, I think the hardest part of feasibility is really. Just training people how to do a relaxed performance and letting them know that it's okay to have people walking around or you know, to be more relaxed. To be more relaxed. And to enjoy more. How、play. hard is that? <laughs> you guys went way past twenty seconds, but I could see your passion. That's okay because Taiwan's a very accessible place, and it just very plays into our inclusive culture and anything that makes Taiwan shine as a friendly country. I like it very, very much. And we just want it to be more accessible. That's right.、Yeah. That's right. A great idea for 2020. Number five. We're counting down ten great ideas for 2020, and we've arrived at number five. Now, single-use tableware is a huge source of trash, but one thing that Taiwan has done to reduce the problem is to ban it at shopping centers. And a village in central Taiwan has come up with an interesting biodegradable alternative. Betel nut is a chewable stimulant that's popular in Asia and some parts of Africa. The nuts grow on big palm-like trees that are a regular sight in Taiwan's mountains. Usually, the leaves of the betel nut trees would be swept up and tossed out, but one neighborhood in Nanto County has found a new use for these leaves. With its large banana and betel plantations, Nanto County has no shortage of oversized leaves. In the past, these leaves were left to decompose in the ground, but now people in one neighborhood here are cutting the leaves and turning them into plates and bowls with the help of hydraulic presses. Each leaf only needs to be pressed for eight minutes to form a bowl or plate. Local Yang Zhenlian says that this disposable but eco-friendly dishware has caught the attention of an Italian company. These sustainable plates and bowls may spell a better quality of life for this rural corner of Taiwan. All right, Natalie. Once again, twenty seconds. Tell us why this is a great idea. All right. So, betel nuts are known to be a major cause of cancer in Taiwan. So, there's finally a positive use of this plant. Now, green is in. So, biodegradable products are in demand. I think this can be a great industry for Taiwan. That's great. I, I like、think? your idea, and、uh, you also finished it very quickly. Nicely done. <laughs> 
You know what I think is really cool about them is they look very cool. I could just imagine a beautiful table setting with all natural things. That's true. You know, they look better Taiwanese. than styrofoam. Yeah, I for mean, sure. I mean, it's better than styrofoam, and of course, you can also throw it away uh, with your, you know, your your leftovers. Um, you can recycle those. It's uh, I guess that would be considered duefe, right? Yeah, it's, biodegradable. Uh, biodegradable. Number four. Taiwan has about 150,000 stray dogs. Now, some people may see them as a nuisance, but from another perspective, that's a lot of dog power. Dog power, indeed. <laughs> Now, a center in southern Taiwan has come up with a unique way to give stray dogs a new lease on life. This is Niu Niu, a police dog whose job is to patrol a neighborhood in the southern city of Tainan. Niu Niu does a pretty good job, but she not only helps the police, she also enjoys playing with children. Tainan's vocational pet training center trains stray dogs like Niu Niu. Holding up two fingers like this means bark twice. Once they are trained, they can become campus dogs or god dogs, depending on their personality. Dog trainer Huang Lianfa said it takes half a month for strays to learn simple commands. The dog is learning to sit on command. It's a win-win situation for all. Training stray dogs also relieves overcrowding in animal shelters because well-trained dogs are in demand. All right, what a great idea! Now you're going to sell it to us, Leslie. Twenty seconds on the clock. I love dogs, man. Dachshunds, corgis, Labradors, Schnauzers, Maltesers, <laughs> uh, Dobermans, Pitbulls—you name it, I love it. All right, um, and dogs are super smart too. I've seen a YouTube video of a golden retriever discern between three different brands of soda, and three different brands, and they're super smart and they're super helpful, and their noses can help you find things, and they're just so good. Let's just throw our furry friends a bone. <laughs> Toss him a bone. I love it. All right, the、uh, dogs are wonderful. I think they're great for the community, and they can be great mascots. They can、mm. be great therapists and security details. So this is an awesome idea. Number three. Now every summer in Taiwan, we have to deal with dengue fever, which is spread by mosquitoes. You can kill them one by one with an electric racket, or maybe you can use a spray, which is more effective. But some people are turning more toward a natural answer. Taiwan is home to dozens of species of bats. You won't just find them in the wild; people raise them too. These flat boxes are actually homes for bats, and the reason why people are raising them is so they'll eat the mosquitoes. Ever since they've been here, there have been fewer mosquitoes. The Bat Association of Taiwan says that bats hunt for food at the same time that the vector mosquitoes for dengue fever come out. There's a spike in people getting bitten by Asian tiger mosquitoes between 5 and 8 p.m. And the first peak in activity for East Asian bats is between 6 to 8 p.m. They have to eat about 1,200 mosquitoes every night. That's what prompted longtime conservationist NPP lawmaker Lin Yukai to visit schools, teaching kids about the role bats play in epidemic prevention and showing them how to make bat houses. Balconies and outdoor walkways are best, and they should be about two meters above the ground. They need good ventilation and sunlight for about 40 to 50 percent of the day. In the U.S., they've used bats to help stop the spread of the Zika virus. Lin says that in Gaoshong, raising bats can reduce the need for fumigation, which will not only save money, it will also reduce the possibility that mosquitoes will become resistant. 
Okay, Andrew, you have 20 seconds to tell us why bats are a great idea. All right. I love this idea. I think it's so <laughs> wonderful. Bats are, first of all, super cute if you look at them up close. Uh, not scary at all. Uh, second thing is, is I was up late last night because I had a mosquito in my room. Oh, no. If I had a pet bat in my house <laughs> that could have eaten that mosquito for me, I would have gotten a great night's sleep. So I think it's a great idea. It's natural. You don't have to worry about chemicals. Everybody should have bats, you know. I wish I had a pet bat, too. Yeah. And That'd if you had great. a pet, you wouldn't need Batman. No mosquitoes. <laughs> if you had a pet bat, Ryan, wouldn't you, Andrew, wouldn't you need, like, I don't know, a thousand mosquitoes to feed to keep it oh, fed? Oh, that's true. Well, you well, know, I would let him go out and out eat. Loose. And then he can come back at night and, like, eat the one, like, as a snack. <laughs> Just that one. <laughs> Midnight snack. All right. And that is a great idea for 2020. Number two. More and more workers are losing their job to automation. Now, one way to ease the situation is to offer a universal basic income, or UBI, which was most famously pushed, perhaps, by U.S. presidential candidate Andrew Yang. I spoke with the head of the Yang Gang in Taiwan, Peter Wang, and also the head of UBI Taiwan, Tyler Prohaska. Prohaska tells us why he thinks Taiwan needs UBI. In Taiwan, we focus on stagnant wages, particularly for young people in Taiwan. And we think that a lot of that is due to the fact of automation. In Asia in particular, there was a study from MIT that predicted over 51% of jobs in Asia could be displaced by automation. Really? And even Foxconn, the Taiwanese company, they want to automate 70% of their manufacturing wow. jobs away. So the trend is already happening. Taiwan has the sixth highest density of robots in the world. So we know that there are companies here that are attempting to automate their jobs away. And what does that mean for the average worker in Taiwan? In the past 20 years, wages, as we all know, have been stagnant while the GDP continues to grow. So where does that money go? It goes to the people that own the robots. So it's not just a United States issue. It is a global issue, and it's an issue here in Taiwan as well. What kind of income are you thinking about for people in Taiwan? We studied uh, 10,000 NT to 12,000 NT for adults and half that for um, young people. And if you incorporate the taxation that would be along with that program, it would be about 4% of Taiwan's GDP after you claw back from wealthier people or polluters. So how much does the conversation in the U.S. affect the conversation in Taiwan? Because it is on the table now mm -hmm. with Andrew Yang. Yeah. Do you think people in Taiwan are paying attention at all? At least from what we see, it's really revved us up. We've gotten a lot of people that come to us because they saw Andrew Yang in Taiwan media. So that connection, because he happens to be Taiwanese-American, has really helped us in our promotion. One of our biggest posts was talking about Andrew Yang and his connection with Taiwan and, and the UBI dividend. Um, so if he's successful in America, I really think it's going to be helpful to us here because Taiwanese people do look at what America's doing and they say, well, America's not doing this, so, so why should Taiwan? So mm -hmm. if, we get, if we get this as a serious discussion in the United States, I certainly think it's going to be a discussion here. All right, Natalie, 20 seconds. Sell us on UBI. Okay. This could help solve the problem of stagnant wages and brain drain. Who would want to leave Taiwan with UBI? <laughs> also, it would give people more time and space to explore their interests and to not have so much pressure in their lives. I think that would make Taiwan a more innovative and happier place. Happier place. Happier place and society. I heard right? the words. Nicely done. You guys done. are efficient. <laughs> <laughs> super efficient with their explanations. 
So, what do you guys think? UBI, would you go for it? Of course. Free I mean, who would say no to free uh, Seriously, money? only the government, but I'm sure they can figure out a way to do this, right? Yeah, I think and the I hardest think problem with it. this is the feasibility of it. I think a lot of governments are mm, thinking it's a pretty sketchy idea, so I guess we'll have to wait and see if uh, anybody pushes this forward in 2020. <laughs> Number one. We finally arrived to number one of our 10 great ideas for 2020. Now, what if I told you there's an exercise you can do that burns twice the calories of running? What? <laughs> <laughs> What's even better is you don't need any extra equipment, time, or money to do it. Kaohsiung Municipal Datong Hospital has turned one of its staircases into a piano keyboard. The idea comes from a similar staircase that was installed in Stockholm's subway system in 2009. Suddenly, a routine activity became an opportunity for musical expression, and 66% of the people who walked past decided to take the stairs instead of an escalator. Back in Kaohsiung, the piano staircase stretches up 11 stories, opening up the prospect of weight loss and better health and under the right pair of feet, perhaps some beautiful music, too. All right, it's an interesting idea. We've got 20 seconds on the clock, and Leslie, sell it to us. All right, so I understand exercise can be pretty excruciating to regular people of the public, and it's something you can't really do passively. You always think about it. This is kind of a passive way to do it, right? Uh, you know, you just want to play a tune on the piano? Go walk some stairs. And knowing <laughs> me, I see myself... Looking at that, I'm like, I'm going to try and play Staying Alive by the Bee Gees uh, on these stairs. <laughs> Leslie, you need to be playing Fly to the Bumblebee. <laughs> so we should install these all over Taiwan, right? I think so. It's that fun. would be great. Mm. Actually, I have been doing this at work. I mean, walking up the stairs. And it feels great. You get a little exercise in while you're at work. But I only wish we had piano steps. But it is a great idea that everyone can use. And it, I think it will lead us to a healthier 2020. So those are our 10 great ideas for 2020. So which one is your favorite? I liked UBI. I think that would have the greatest impact on Taiwan. It would make us a stronger and happier country. All right, Leslie. Power generating nanofabrics turn me into a battery, baby. <laughs> <laughs> For me, my favorite was definitely the bats. Ah, yeah, you I should love get those a bat. bats. That's the easiest one. Maybe I'll keep one here at the office and see if my coworkers <laughs> like it. All right, well, our next program will be a live broadcast on Election Day, so be sure. Thank you.
Taiwan Today with Natalie So. Hello and welcome to Taiwan Today. I am Natalie So. On January 11th, President Taiwan was re-elected with 57% of the vote. Now, what should she do next in her second term? Well, today I speak with Bill Sharp, a visiting scholar at National Taiwan University, who gives us his thoughts. She's got a lot of political capital now. She didn't have much political capital before the election. She won the election by gaining over 8 million votes. So, as you know, that was a record a record number of votes. So she's got to use this to push through her 5 plus 2. Plus, if she has such this, this uh, really great relationship with America, she's got to really develop that further in order to get a free trade agreement or bilateral investment treaty with the U.S. Since she does have this capital now, she has the means, I think, to uh, agree to to work out a, a solution to America's opposition to an FTA or bilateral investment treaty. You think that they, they would? Because I know that one of the main issues is the pork Right. Parts That's what I'm getting to. Chemicals. Do you think that they would be lenient on that issue? Well, I think if she wants an FTA or a bilateral investment treaty, she probably has no choice. The truth of the matter is that the U.S. is not as interested in an FTA with Taiwan as Taiwan is uh, with the U.S. And so she's really got to use some of her political capital to open the market. You know, it, it's... The U.S. Uh, Food and Drug Administration has declared rectopamine uh, safe, and mm-hmm. it's also been noted as safe by the U.N. Uh, Commission that sets international food standards. And um, by that standard, the uh, U.S. meets the safety requirement. My, my view is she should open the market and let the market decide. If people uh, are happy with U.S. pork that's treated with rectopamine, let them buy it. If they're not, then good. And American pork sellers uh, go home. But I think the truth is that size options are rather limited. As much as she wanted to, as she has wanted to have an FTA with America or a bilateral investment treaty, she has also campaigned hard to get into the Japanese and Australian version of the TPP, the so-called Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership. But due to Chinese pressure, uh, that is pressure that China's putting on countries that are also involved in an agreement, and that further is pressure not to accept Taiwan, it seems unlikely that Taiwan will be admitted. Furthermore, if China has recently said that it would like to be a member of that TPP, and of course I think it goes without saying that if China should be uh, admitted to the TPP, it'll be with the provision that Taiwan, the stipulation that Taiwan not be admitted. So that comes back to this FTA with America. She really needs to do everything she can uh, to get that, and the key is opening the port market. Okay, so that is a major, I guess, uh, foreign policy that she needs to do, right? An economic policy. What about relations with China? How do you think she should handle them in the next term? Well, this is very interesting. I think she's seeking to create a a better relationship with China. 
Of course, she has her position and China has its position. Perhaps the Wuhan epidemic can be a way to open doors between both the mainland and Taiwan. I noted that although the mainland says that they've broken off all connections with Taiwan, that they recently admitted to Taiwan health officials uh, to Wuhan to gain more information about the epidemic. You know, I think also we have um, a bit of political revolution going on in Taiwan, I think. And I think that that's mainly in the Kuomintang, the Nationalist Party, because there's a, the younger people there are saying, hey, let's get rid of this 92 consensus. It's outdated. Even James Sung, who's supposedly pan blue, and I think that's where his sentiments really lie, although admittedly some people would say he's an opportunist, he, he made a statement the other day saying that, you know, the 92 consensus is out of date. It doesn't have any relevance at all. And I think everybody knows that the one country, two systems method doesn't have any traction in Taiwan at all, despite, regardless of, of which end of the political spectrum you're talking about. So I also saw a very interesting comment the other day by a young member of the uh, Nationalist Party saying, you know, we should um, think more about our relationship with America than with China. So I, I think maybe there's a change that's unfolding. In the Kuomintang, a lot is going to depend on this election for the, uh, the new chairperson that's going to take place in May. Hmm. Uh, I think of how long been that he obviously is going to adhere to the old line. But if it's a younger member, a more reasonable member, there could be a huge shift. The fact that a proposal has been made for everybody over 60 to get off of the Central Committee, I think that's going to usher in a new era. So do you think that's a major key for the KMT to have new younger leaders and new ways of thinking? I think that I think that's their future because, you know, the old guard is not doing it anymore. The old guard is, has ran the course of time. I, I don't think that they have any longevity remaining. But when we talk about the 92 consensus, that that was kind of like a, a compromise. I mean, it's one China and each side with its own interpretation, where, where China would interpret it as, you know, we're recognizing one China, but we in Taiwan would say there's an ROC and PRC. So why is that outdated? I mean, there's just a way well, to get you know, around I think the issue. When Ma was in office, the mainland agreed to this one China, multiple interpretations. That was during the Ma era. Mm -hmm. I think things have changed. And now, as I see what Xi Jinping is saying, it's like one China and one China only. So there is no flexibility anymore. So how do you think Xi Jinping will deal with Taiwan in Tsai's second term? That, that's a good question. I think that he is probably thinking of the same thing right now. But um, <laughs> think of how he's going to deal with it. You know, I think one thing that's been proven is Xi Jinping claims that he understands Taiwan because he was the governor of Fujian province. Mm -hmm. But I think he doesn't understand Taiwan, and I don't think he understands Hong Kong either. In both places, you have the growth of a Taiwan identity and a Hong Kong identity, and China refuses to accept that. So if I think of China wants any kind of meaningful relationship with Taiwan, they're going to have to accept the view that, that both places don't share a mainland view. 
that'll be hard for Xi Jinping to accept. But Xi Jinping also has a lot of other problems that he's dealing with right now. And uh, Taiwan and Hong Kong are just uh, additional issues. On the other hand, uh, you know, it's likely that he will uh, seek to put more pressure on Taiwan, uh, seek more military intimidation, seek to further isolate uh, Taiwan internationally. Uh, he might go after more allies. I, actually, I don't think the allies that Taiwan has are all that important. I don't think that Taiwan really needs them. But what he might try to do, and he's tried this in a couple of places. He tried this in Nigeria, and uh, as, as maybe that's the prime example, is he tries to go after Taiwan's economic relations with other countries. And obviously, Nigeria does not have diplomatic relations with Taiwan, but Taiwan had pretty robust trade relations with Nigeria. When the Ni Nigeria moved its uh, capital city to an, in uh, to an inland city, and Taiwan wanted to move its, uh, its TECO, its economic affairs office, to the new uh, capital. However, China put enough pressure on Nigeria that said that they had to leave the economic affairs office in Abuja, the old capital, which, you know, somewhat hindered uh, further economic uh, relations. I think it's likely to try that kind of thing. Do you think there's anything President Tsai can do to improve relations with China? Uh, that, that's a really good question. Well, there is, a, there is an opportunity now. I mean, Taiwan has a lot of knowledge about health affairs and that sort of thing. And China is facing a major public health crisis. Perhaps Taiwan can extend help to uh, China mm. in this uh, area. I think that when it comes to medical issues, that Taiwan has a lot to offer. That's true. And it should be in the World Health Organization. I mean, this is not really a political question. It's a humanitarian question. Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, the expertise in Taiwan could be usefully shared with China. And perhaps that would be the beginning of a better relationship. And what about domestically? I mean, you talked about, uh, you know, with the U.S. and we talked about with China. What do you think is the main thing she needs to do domestically to perform well in, in her second term? Well, I noted a lot of the, uh, how should I say, the social programs, the social benefits that she de de designed actually fairly shortly before the, before the election. She probably needs to carry through with those uh, supplementary payments for this or for that. Mm -hmm. I think Hong Yu had a, a good idea in the sense that he wanted to broaden the financial base for uh, size for the, I, I shouldn't say size, I should say the Taiwan long-term health care plan. The economic pillars upon which it was based were pretty limited. And I know that she picked that idea up and she increase the economic uh, wherewithal of that program. So that, that's a good point. I think that the, the key here is getting an economy that creates higher paying jobs. And I think it all gets back to mm -hmm. um, pushing through the five plus two. The emerging industries, right? Right, right. Creating more valuable uh, work, right? 
That's that's kind of complicated, right? It's not just like oh, easy it's not fix. something that can be taken can be accomplished overnight. It does mm-hmm. need time. At this point, probably the progress. If I if I were to put on my professor's cap, I would probably give her a C plus. Mm. So she's got a ways to go. Mm-hmm. But these things are not simple. They they take time to do. Hangul use ideas were actually pretty simple, mm-hmm. uh, and were not time consuming. Setting up these um, self-sufficiency economic zones could be done fairly quickly. But the downside was that it would uh, bind China and Taiwan closer, and she certainly doesn't want that. Mm. She wants independence from China. She wants to be less dependent on China. Right. So is it really upgrading Taiwan's industries, right? Right, right. And I think, you know, it's, it's unfortunate that Taiwan electorate is somewhat spoiled, if you ask me. Um, they want instant results. Well, yeah, I voted for you, so where's the results? I see this in the South Korean voters, too, and maybe to some degree in Japanese voters. They they lack patience. They think, well, I vote for, voted for you, so where's the result? Their patience is very, very short. Well, um, yeah, I think she's done a few things on um, tried to increase the minimum wage and right. things like that. But if you're going to turn around industries right. to be uh, valuable on the global market, it's that's a different story, right? And I think it is moving in that direction. Do you see that? Yeah, I think it is moving in that direction. But again, at the time, it, it, takes time it, right? it takes time to create these new industries. She needs the cooperation of business to achieve a lot of what she wants to achieve. Yeah, thank you for your thoughts. Well, you're quite welcome. I appreciate it. That was Bill Sharp, a visiting scholar at National Taiwan University's Department of History. Sharp is also a Taiwan Fellow with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Taiwan. Thanks for tuning in to Taiwan Today. I'm Natalie So. The Sound of the Puyuma Tribe on Radio Taiwan International. Today's time traveler is John Van Trieste and the destination Taipei 1914. The Taipei Story House is the sort of building that pops out from its surroundings. The bright yellow brick and timber structure with its tidy garden is set off in quaint contrast to Taipei's hulking modern art museum next door and the gray tangle of overpasses just across the river. The building itself doesn't seem to mind. It's been here by the riverside for so long that if anything, it's the surroundings that are really out of place. 
Today, this century-old building plays host to exhibits that, well, tell stories. Every kind of story you can imagine. Turkish handicrafts and European porcelains are just two of the topics covered here in the last year. But now, the Story House is putting on a display that hits much closer to home. It's the story of the reason the Story House is here in the first place. The answer, in a word, is tea. But more on that in a moment. First, I want to invite you to go into the house with me. It's quiet here as we pass beneath the stone balcony and enter up the steps through the front door. There's just us, volunteer guide Zheng Hong, and the warm, spicy smell of old wood. Our guide, Mr. Zheng, has let us in early, before the story house opens to the public. Today, he'll be taking us back to the 1910s, when Taiwan was under Japanese colonial rule, and when a tea merchant called Chen Chaojun reached the wealthy summit of Taipei's tea world. Chen Chaojun made his fortune from a specific kind of tea, Baozhong tea. This kind of tea wasn't exactly new to Taiwan. It had already started gaining a foothold after a bad year in 1873 hit Taiwan's more famous oolong tea hard. But Chen took this Baozhong tea and made it into an international hit. As we stand near the entrance, in front of an outline of the merchant's life, our guide tells us what exactly Baozhong tea is. This is a light tea, most commonly associated with northern Taiwan. It has a faint but fragrant flavor. There are two kinds of Baozhong tea. One is plain Baozhong tea, produced in small, high-quality batches and served as is. The other kind is scented with aromatic flowers like jasmine. Baozhong tea gets its name, which means the wrapped-up kind in Chinese, from the fact that it was originally wrapped up in paper packets. So the tea is literally wrapped up, and then the whole packet is stamped on top with the tea merchant's logo. Exports of Taiwan's more famous oolong tea long remained in the hands of Western merchants. But the market for Baozhong tea was open for the taking. The tea merchant Chen Chaojun was well-placed to take this market and to popularize this kind of tea outside Taiwan. That's what he did. We now walk into a room off the front entrance, where a sign that takes up an entire wall tells the next part of the story. Chen's father had also been a tea merchant, and his business ventures had taken him from the family home in China's coastal southeast to the rich markets of Java, and from then to the tea processing center of Taipei. For Chen Chaojun, who was born into this family in 1886, two of these places, Taiwan and Java, would prove to be fortune makers. But it was skill and effort as much as family background that got Chen his place in the tea world. Up the carpeted staircase to the second floor, surrounded by displays of contemporary teapots, is a chart that shows just how this merchant turned Baozhong tea into a commodity. Chen took over the family tea business in Taiwan during 1900. There had been gradual growth before he showed up on the scene, but his efforts at promotion and organization helped create a golden age for Baozhong tea sales. 
The same year he took over as head tea merchant here, he was already in Paris, promoting the tea at the Exposition Universelle, the latest of the period's trendy world's fairs. Back in Taiwan, he would go on to sponsor improvements in tea cultivation, organize tea competitions, and build up an enthusiastic market for Baozhong tea in Southeast Asia. In 1900, when he first took over, Taiwan was exporting around 1.5 million kilograms of Baozhong tea a year. By 1912, when the family opened a branch office in Java, that had jumped to just short of 3.6 million kilograms. How much Chen himself had to do with this is hard to say, but his contributions to Baozhong tea were notable, and they kept on coming. In 1915, he was chosen to head a Taipei Tea Merchants Association, and he successfully pushed a joint export scheme that put exports of Baozhong tea completely under this association's control. It was during these years that Chen had the story house built. He'd by now achieved a certain social position, and he needed a place to meet and entertain Japanese colonial officials and his business associates. Our guide tells us that at the time, the road that runs out front was an important link between downtown Taipei and the ritzy neighborhood where many officials lived. Today, the roads here are even busier. But in 1914, when the story house was finished, our guide says this was a quiet, empty area. It was a good spot, though, because the river that runs out back connects all the way to the neighborhood that once housed Taipei's big tea firms. A wharf was built so guests could arrive by riverboat. Chen Chaojun was very specific about what he wanted. Just as Taiwan was under Japanese rule at the time, Java and all of Indonesia was then under Dutch rule. The Dutch had brought in some recent Western trends to Indonesia, including the Tudor revival style. Chen set his mind on recreating one Dutch design in particular in Taiwan. With the help of a Japanese architect and the profits from Taiwanese tea, he did. The result has a brick ground floor and a bright yellow upper half framed with red timber. The stone balcony over the entrance is crowned with a stained glass window that seems to glow when the lights are on inside. And the whole thing is covered in a greenish roof, perhaps made of copper. Inside, you can tell without looking that Chen used the very best wood available. As we make our way back down the carpeted staircase, that same spicy wooden smell that's followed us from the entrance is still in the air. That's Taiwanese cypress wood, still prized today and now heavily regulated by law. This was high society. The furnishings are rich, and even the small fireplace is flanked with ornamental stone columns. A few black and white photographs taken a few decades later show that for a long time, this was a relaxing place where matters of importance could be talked over at a leisurely pace, maybe even over a cup of tea. After all, Chen never forgot what it was that had built this place. One of his descendants who spent time here as a child remembered that the same flowers used to flavor Baozhong tea always grew here in the garden. Unfortunately, Chen would have less than a decade to enjoy his rise in society and his beautiful mini-mansion. In 1923, he passed away, having organized an all-Taiwan tea competition the year before. 
Chen's life and the story of Taiwan's Baozhong Tea are important parts in the story this exhibit tells. But the Taipei Story House likes to tell many stories, and this is just one thread in the story this time around. Throughout the house, there are large displays of traditional and modern teacups and utensils, the kind used for brewing and enjoying Baozhong tea. And there's also an exploration of the Japanese tea culture that entered Taiwan during the 50 years of colonial rule. Upstairs, a room is set for a Japanese tea ceremony. And as we walk back down towards the front door, we step past a Japanese cast-iron teapot hung from the ceiling over a burner. All of these objects, even the new ones, recall the story house's connection with tea, a story that began more than a hundred years ago. I'm John Van Trieste, and I hope you'll join me again next week for another journey through time. This is Taiwan Explained, brought to you by Radio Taiwan International. According to the Chinese zodiac, this coming year is the year of the rat, which is the first in a cycle of 12 years. And that's the subject of today's Taiwan Explained. Okay, so you have 60 seconds to tell us what all that means. Okay. Ready? Yes. Go. All right, if you look at the hongbao, the lucky red envelopes that people are giving each other this year, you'll notice that many of them feature rats, and some even also have cats. But where are the cats in the Chinese zodiac? Well, if you look at the 12 animal years, you'll see that the rat is first, and there is no cat. So how could the smallest animal possibly come first? Well... Legend has it that the Jade Emperor held a party and invited all the animals, and he based the order of the zodiac on the order in which they arrived. Now, the animals had to cross a river in order to get there, and as you know, cats and rats, they hate water. So, the rat tricked the ox into giving him a ride, and the cat decided to go along as well. But then the rat pushed the cat into the water, and then just before they arrived at the party... The rat jumped down ahead of the ox, becoming the first sign in the zodiac. And that's why cats and rats are mortal enemies to this day. Nice job, Andrew. <laughs> Perfect timing. Thank you. So this is the Chinese zodiac. What do people say about people born in the year of the rat? That's a great question. I actually want to show you some famous rats. I hope they won't take offense. Uh, you can see Scarlett Johansson. We've got The Rock. Dwayne Johnson, of course, Pope Francis, as you can tell by that picture, Rosa Parks, uh, and Mark Zuckerberg from Facebook fame. Uh, now, what are these people like? You can decide whether you believe this or not, but they're said to be clever, quick thinkers, successful. I think all these people are definitely successful, uh, but content with living the peaceful and quiet life. Mm, I don't think that's true. I don't true. think they do. <laughs> um, also, they're said to be wasteful and quick to temper, but also creative and honest, ambitious and generous. That's very interesting. I wonder if they know that they are rats. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you should ask them. I'm not going to ask them. <laughs> so if you want to know what Chinese zodiac animal you are, you can check out our show notes below. And that is our Taiwan Explained for the week.
Thank you for listening to Radio Taiwan International, broadcasting from Taipei, Taiwan. Check out our website at english.rti.org.tw. Again, that's english.rti.org.tw for the latest news and features from Taiwan. You can also listen to our programs and watch videos as well. Our 60-minute English language program can also be heard every day at the following times and frequencies. In southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 6180 kHz. Again, that's in southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 6180 kHz. And in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. Again, that's in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. We'd love to hear from you. Please send your comments to P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Again, that's P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Or send an email to rti at rti.org.tw. Again, that's rti at rti.org.tw. Also visit us on Facebook. The address is fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International. Once again, on Facebook, we're located at fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International for videos, photos, and news of interest from Taiwan. Thank you once again for listening to Radio Taiwan International.